Hello, everybody. We're going to get started uh, just on time. I know the people are going to be trickling in. Um, I'm really pleased that you're all here, and I hope that you enjoy this session, which is entitled Lost in Translation, Making Sense of Clinical Treatment Guidelines. I'm Charles Algoff. This is Mark Wallace, and that's Brett Stacey. Um, and um, we're going to have fun, I think. Um, so um, um, this is what we hope to do today. We know that there are just an in it, we're inundated with different clinical treatment guidelines, and these have been especially you know for pain week. These have been uh, also established for headache and pain management. Um, many, including at least me, um, and I will see my colleagues and maybe even you, have questioned the benefit of such clinical guidelines for the treatment of individual patients. How do you take a treatment guideline and apply it to the individual? Um, and so what we'll do during this, this session, I'm going to eventually, when I stop this introduction, um, talk about headache guidelines, migraine guidelines. Um, Dr. State, Brett Stacey is going to be talking about neuropathic pain treatment guidelines. And Dr. Mark Wallace will talk about interventional pain management guidelines. And, and, and we then, if we, there is time, we, we will um, cover the CDC guidelines for op chronic opioid management. Um, but we really also want to leave time for a discussion with those of you who are in the audience. And so this is what we're going to do. So what's evidence-based medicine? Uh, some of you may know that uh, recent last year, David Sackett, who is the um, originator of the term, uh, uh, for lack of, don't even be sexist, the father of evidence-based medicine, um, uh, uh, over 20 years ago had published in the British Medical Journal what it is. Um, and it's important to know what it is and what it's not. What it is is the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. So think about how that, and that's what we do. We're making the decisions about individual patients. We're using best evidence, but we're, used, but we're using, if you look at the second uh, definition, which is related to what Dr. Sackett published, it's the judicious use of the best current evidence in making the care of patients. Evidence-based medicine is intended to integrate clinical expertise with research evidence and patient value. So evidence-based medicine is not what's in a guideline. It's not what's in a study. It's integrating what's in those studies with your personal experience, your clinical skills, in the best interest of your patient. Okay, and I think that I will say up front, and my colleagues may disagree, and you may disagree, but I think that's where treatment guidelines fail us. They don't guide us making decisions about individual patients. They are reviews of extensive literature. They're extensive literature reviews, and they may use a formal rating system to assign suggested therapies, but they don't give us on their own the ability to take care of an individual patient. So first topic here is going to be, do published migraine guidelines improve patient outcomes? And we can come to that question or answer that question at the end. These are my disclosures, um, and I, I, I can't see how we're not going to wind up talking about off-label use of medications in this discussion over the next couple of hours, so you're, you are so informed. Um, so the American Academy of Neurology has published in, within the last couple of years uh, guidelines for the treatment of certain headache conditions, um, including episodic and other mi uh, migraine and other conditions. And so what we're going to do in this portion of 
the discussion is identify those pharmacologic therapies which, for which there's strong evidence for their use in treatment uh, of episodic migraine and note limitations. Um, this is a slide that a dear friend of mine, Brad Gaylor, who helped to, among other things in his career, develop uh, the, the treatment, uh, the 5% lidocaine patch, better known as Lidoderm, uh, shared with me many, many years ago, so I want to give him credit for giving this to me. Um, and this is a slide of a rat that's been involved in an antidepressant trial. Um, I mean no disrespect to mental health in general, so please do not interpret it this way, but the, the rat um, is being evaluated for its success, and um, it's hanged itself, and you can see discouraging data on the antidepressant um, as the blurb, as the researchers come by. Why am I, I, I would say that with what information we have right now uh, and guidelines, do, it's not as bad as this, but guidelines do not, this, this is, this is it's this, guidelines are discouraging because they don't tell us who's going to benefit from what treatment in general, not in pain management, and they don't give us a sense of how we can do better um, with patients. Um, this is uh, uh, um, another colleague who's here. In fact, um, um, uh, he's in, at this meeting, Dr. Bachgonia. Um, he, over 20, almost 20 years ago, uh, was the lead author of this paper that was published in JAMA, um, and it is entitled Gabapentin in the Treatment of Painful Diabetic Neuropathy. And there's a point that I'd like to make here, make here about the way that we, these are studies that would be used to make guidelines. Um, there is a, the, the mean pain intensity level of most people, of, of the overall group, this is painful people with painful diabetic neuropathy, was 6.6 .6 out of 10. The ending, the end pain intensity level in this study of those who experienced um, uh, uh, gabapentin treatment was about 30% less. I think it's like 28%. Let's do 30%. Um, and if you, if you subtract 30% of 6.6, .6, which is 1.98, so let's round it out to 2, the mean pain intensity of those who experienced gabapentin treatment was 4.6 out of 10. And that was superior to the mean pain intensity level of the placebo treatment group. So this is considered a positive study. So why am I boring you with these details? Because if this, 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 if this was used in the development of a treatment guideline that maybe you're going to talk about in gabapentin, in diabetic neuropathy, um, you, would be, you would think this is a you know, really useful medicine, right? To get into this trial, you needed to have not only painful diabetic neuropathy, but a mean pain intensity level of 4 out of 10 or greater. So here's the take-home message and the, the, the punchline. You could have been successful. The majority of people who were successfully treated with gabapentin in this trial still had enough pain at the end of the trial to re-enroll. So what, how is that guideline going to help us manage that person's pain on its own if it was included? How are we, how are we going to make, how are we going to, that person's going to come back and say, I'm still in pain. And these data, if we believe in evidence, would say, of course you're going to still be in pain. It's very likely you're going to be in pain. Right? So that's something to think about. All right. So at the end of the day, you really want to think about how good is the evidence, right? And, and we um, really want to make sure that we practice evidence-based practice, but at the end of the day, we're using the information that we get from studies to treat people individually. So focusing on the American Academy of Neurology guidelines. Um, this was designed to uh, highlight which, which, what treatments might benefit, what pharmacologic treatments might benefit people 
um, for the treatment of episodic migraine in, in adults. The, the guidelines were published in early 2010-2011, so these are, are ripe for being redone, but that these are the most recent ones that we have. And we looked at studies, I was part of the author panel and developed these guidelines. We looked at um, uh, published studies from 1999 through 2009. We reckon the way that the American Academy of Neurology assigns evidence levels, A is the um, is absolute, is the treatment should be recommended. U is there is insufficient data to support the recommendation, B and C are in between. And here we go, A is established as effective and should be offered, B is possibly effective and should be offered, um, C is possibly effective and may be considered, and C is there's inadequate information to talk that. So which were level A treatments? These were established as effective and should be offered for migraine prevention. Well, the anticonvulsants, divalproic sodium, which is sometimes known as Depakote, um, for example, or Depakine, um, sodium valproate is the same family, topiramate, which you know the brand name is Topamax, the beta blockers, metoprolol, propranolol, and timolol, and the triptans, one of the triptans, frobotriptan, which has a very long half-life, um, for short-term menstrual-associated migraine prevention, which were level B. Um, these are po probably effective and should be considered for migraine prevention, amitriptyline, uh, venlafaxine for antidepressants, two additional beta blockers, atenolol and natolol, and narotriptan and zomatriptan also for the short-term treatment of menstrual-associated migraine. Level C um, included that would mean that they would be possibly effective and could maybe consider for migraine prevention. The ACE inhibitor lisinopril, the ARB or angiotensin receptor blocker uh, candesartan, um, alpha agonists such as clonidine and guanfacine, the anticonvulsant carbamazepine and the beta blocker, and two additional beta blockers. And level U, this is evidence which is best inadequate or, or conflicting, gabapentin, the SNRI and SSRI agents, um, protriptyline, uh, certain antithrombotics, including warfarin of all things, another beta blocker, bisoprolol, which I confess I've never used before, the calcium channel blockers, nicotropine, nifedipine, nimodipine, and verapamil, acetazolamide, and cyclandolate. So there are lots of um, other treatments. Um, so let me just pause there and say, how many of you use Depakote in your, Depaprol acid in your practice if you use migraine? Anybody? Treat, okay. Um, Topiramate, right? Um, you know, it's like you're, at best you've got a 50-50 chance of helping somebody. And what's defined as help is reducing headache frequency by 50%. Um, and only for the valproic acid level, for, for the Depakote studies, which is an FDA-approved drug for migraine prevention, 48% of people respond. That means 52% in studies, if you use that data, would not respond. But yet it's a level A recommendation. How useful is that clinically? Topiramate is 50-50. How useful is that in taking care of people? How many of you, be, it's 50-50 that you're gonna be okay. Who, who wants to hear that as a patient? Right, so how useful is that kind of guideline? Yes, you reviewed, the literature was reviewed, and there was a, a, pres, a, a predefined way of analyzing the literature, and I just showed you, um, you know, what the results are, but it doesn't help you take care of the individual patient very well. These were recommendations to avoid certain so level A negative, so lamotrigine, which is still used by some because there have been anecdotal reports of it being beneficial, so that's lamictal. Um, this was established as ineffective. Clomipramine, 
established as probably ineffective, and then many level C possibly ineffective agents that you see here, including clonazepam, nebumatone, which is an NSAID, oxcarbazepine, which is an anticonvulsant, and telmosartan. Um, when it came to thinking about complementary treatments or NSAIDs for the prevention of, of episodic migraine, the level A, this is a level A meaning it's established as, as effective and should be offered for migraine prevention. Uh, Pedicytes or Butterbur is the name that you may know, was established as level A, but probably effective, included a whole list of, of medications that you see there, including phenoprofen, ibuprofen, ketoprofen, naproxen, naproxen sodium, which is a different salt, uh, feverfew, uh, magnesium, riboflavin, and subcutaneous histamine. I confess I have never personally used subcutaneous histamine in my practice, but there are data supporting that. Again, still, this is not 100% slam dunk. It's not even 50% of people are going to respond. Level C, that, may, that possibly could be effective and may be considered, uh, cyproheptadine, which is an old antihistamine, CoQ10, estrogen, methanamic acid, and fluoroprofen as well. Level U, meaning evidence that was conflicting or inadequate, aspirin, indomethacin, omega-3, and hyperbaric oxygen, and level B negative, the um, asthma medication, Montelukast. Okay, so take-home message from that review is, again, you wouldn't be given, as a provider, a lot of information. Somebody comes in, and you still wouldn't be, from these guidelines, which is a laundry list of, of reviews of, of, of data, you would not be given, as a clinician, or me as a clinician, or my colleagues as, a clinician, as clinicians, we would not be given a guide to actually what is likely to help. And then therefore, how useful are those guidelines in helping me or you or us to decide what to use? This is the craziest thing. Um, in October 2010, uh, I'm sorry, it, it, right before October 2010, um, uh, in 2008, November 2008, and I confess that I was an author of this guideline on using botulinum toxin for headache and pain um, because at that time, um, even though the pivotal trials that led to the FDA approval of onobotulinum toxin A, which is the generic term for Botox, um, were being done for the approval for chronic migraine, um, they were being done at that time, uh, and there were multiple conflicting data sets in the literature, um, the panel came to the conclusion that was, there was conflicting evidence. Now, I personally have been using onobotulinum toxin A in an off-label manner for a decade prior to the publication in 2008 of this guideline. And it's, I would tell you clinically that it is one of the most effective treatments that I've used for people with refractory migraine, with chronic migraine. But because of the way the data had been analyzed, and the way the data had been obtained, the American Academy of Neurology published a guideline that said there is presently no consistent or strong evidence to permit drawing conclusions on the efficacy of botulinum neurotoxin, which is referring to onobotulinum toxin A, in chronic daily headache, mainly transformed migraine. That term got transformed to chronic migraine. But within two years of that guideline being published, so you know the FDA had the data during that time, um, the FDA approved that same medication for chronic migraine. So here you are, you're reading something while behind the scenes the drug's getting approved by the FDA. So, you know, those of you shaking your head and smiling, thank you for doing that, but you're getting my point. And so we have to be really careful 
I'm not sure what the solution is, but I mean, I told you my clinical experience. There were many issues associated with why the data was conflicting. Um, we can talk about that if you want to know later in questions and answers. But the fact is that within a very short period of time, the drug was FDA approved for the very, for the very reason that these guidelines said we, could, we can't conclude anything about it. So, so real clinical considerations that were not addressed in these um, guidelines, there's no available evidence that's available to establish how to choose an optimal therapy for an individual patient. I kind of alluded to that already. The evidence is not available to help us to choose one treatment over another. We know that treatment must be individualized, and I think my colleagues agree with that. And there's no evidence that it exists for making comparisons even among multiple agents within the same class. So I mentioned several beta blockers. How do you choose one over another? I make this point already, but I want to make it again. For all level A recommended treatments, so um, I don't mean to bore you with the terminology the AAN uses, but level A means you, this should be considered and recommended. So this is like the de la creme, right? Um, a large percentage of patients fail. That's just totally crazy if you think about it as a clinician. So I'm going to stop there. These are references. And I'm going to stop here and turn the podium over to Dr. Stacy. Good morning, everyone, for coming to our session. We appreciate that. Um, I'm Brett Stacey. I'm living in Seattle now as of December of 2014, and I have the privilege of being the medical director of the grandchild of the oldest pain clinic in the world, which is pretty exciting. Um, I am an anesthesiologist by trade, by training, but my interest is neuropathic pain. About half the patients I see in clinic have neuropathic pain. Um, I spend most of my time seeing patients, not doing other things. So I have a few disclosures. First is, I will definitely discuss off-label medication uses. I have some conflicts with consulting and research. I'm not a neurologist, but I'm going to be talking about neuropathic pain. But you act like one. I, I, can, I can fake it sometimes, <laughs> as long as you have to show your card to prove you're in the, in the club. Um, I've definitely participated in guideline development. I use guidelines somewhat in my practice. I have mixed feelings. I think they can help provide guidance. They certainly can constrain clinical practice or be used to do so. They may not apply to my patients. And I've been involved with clinical trials for drugs that are on those guidelines. So I'm a little biased. So we'll get back to these self-assessment questions at the end. First one, true, false. Anti-inflammatory drugs are a first-line treatment for most neuropathic pain guidelines. True, false. Because of the many common symptoms, the appropriate first-line treatment choices are the same for the different neuropathic pain diagnoses, which is the trick question in the group. And three, the guidelines account for comorbid pain conditions. So let's start with what is neuropathic pain. This definition has changed in the last decade for what neuropathic pain is, and I honestly think that the basis for the change was a fear of fibromyalgia and central sensitization syndromes. Because those clearly involve the nervous system, did neurologists want to treat fibromyalgia except for very few? Usually not. So they wanted to change the diagnosis. So they came up with in the way you make the diagnosis. So now the definition is pain caused by a lesion or disease of the somatosensory nervous system. Translate that into English. It's pain from the nerves, the spinal cord, or the brain because of damage or disease. It doesn't start in the bones, the muscles, or the organs. So how common is neuropathic pain? It's 
pretty darn common. It depends on how you define neuropathic. Sometimes neuropathic is defined by a questionnaire. You can't tell if someone has a disease or lesion from a questionnaire very well. So really, to make the, the diagnosis of neuropathic pain requires a physical examination and a neurologic examination. But looking at questionnaires plus examination studies, in the general population, it's somewhere in the 6 to 10% range of people. Um, the pain detect is one of the many neuropathic pain screening tools. And if you look at chronic pain patients, maybe 37% of them have at least neuropathic, quote, features. Um, if you look at patients who are in a pain clinic setting, it's, even, it's in that same kind of range. If you look at back pain patients, um, and back pain is defined in a very weird way. Like, my understanding of what the back is is something in here. But often when you read about, quote, neuropathic back pain, that means pain that goes down like the L5 or S1 distribution. This is not my back, but often it's described as the back. Um, so with that broad definition of back, which is somewhere or another the back is involved, neuropathic component in 15 to 40% of patients. So it's not uncommon. And it's a big deal. And the more severe the pain, the bigger the deal is. So this is a stop slide you're not going to be able to interpret very well. But trust me, what it shows in that, those little bar graphs is that the higher your pain score, the more impacted your quality of life is. I can show you a similar slide, which I cut out because I thought I had too many slides like this. It shows that the higher your pain score, the more use of the healthcare system you make, the more frequent visits to a doctor, the less likely you are, you're less likely to be employed, You've, your actual expenditure is twice as much if you're in the high pain score versus a low pain score group in a year. So high pain scores are worse than lower pain scores across the board, and patients are less treatment responsive in the high pain score group. So neuropathic pain is a big deal, and poorly treated neuropathic pain is a bigger deal. So we want to treat it well, make it a less big, less impact, lesser impact. But the reality is, in our country now, neuropathic pain is often poorly treated and not diagnosed. And then when it is diagnosed, it's not treated with evidence-based approaches. So I am an anesthesiologist. I confess that at the beginning. I have not been in an operating room you know, turning dials and putting tubes in people in a long, long time, but I'm still an anesthesiologist. I make the diagnosis of neuropathic pain. I can't imagine a clinic session in which I don't make the diagnosis that has not been made before. And these are patients who have seen physicians. Everybody coming to our clinics referred by a provider. Um, so someone has seen them, examined them, yet they're not diagnosed yet. So that means we, as a group, would do a bad job of doing this. And then once we do it, we often use medications that really aren't very effective or underdose them. So it's a big deal. We want to do better. So maybe guidelines can help us, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So what are some of the common neuropathic pain guidelines? There's a whole, I mean, pain, neuropathic pain conditions. There's a whole list of, of conditions that are um, thought to have primarily a neuropathic pain component to them. Those with a little blue asterisk after them are the four that have FDA-approved medications. If you lived in Europe, the approval process is different. There's approval for central neuropathic pain, peripheral neuropathic pain, as well as specific conditions. So some of the medications we're going to look at are, are approved for a broader category. There is no broad, broad category indication for any medication in the United States. So those lists of conditions are really quite diverse if you think about them. 
varying etiologies. Some of them are from trauma, some of them from disease, some of them from an anti-autoimmune condition. Um, the symptoms really vary dramatically. Some people have lots of sensitivity to minor stimuli, like allodynia and hyperalgesia. Other people are very deafferented. It could be the primarily central neuropathic pain condition or primarily a peripheral neuropathic injury that started the process. So pathophysiology is quite different. Lots of papers written about even with the same etiology for the pain, like post-herpetic neuralgia, a very overstudied condition because it's interesting to people and easy to study. Um, but if you look at post-herpetic neuralgia, there's people who have clearly different pathophysiology, even though the same virus attacked the same part of their bodies. The, the, the resulting pathophysiology from that attack is different. There's different body parts, there's different comorbidities, and there's clearly different patient populations. Again, back to post-herpetic neurology, those tend to be older folk. Traumatic injuries tend to be younger people. Those can't be the same. So can you, we have treatments that apply across all these diagnoses? Well, some do, some don't. When we start looking at guidelines and reviews, who, write, who writes a review really matters. An opinion comes across no matter how they try not to have opinion. So I picked venlafaxine. I picked venlafaxine because the evidence for venlafaxine is not like, yeah, it's fantastic, and it's not, oh, it's horrible. It's a middle ground area for evidence. So this first review concludes, after saying, hey, the studies aren't very good, venlafaxine has a place as a treatment option for neuropathic pain. Next one, again says, we need to do more studies, the studies aren't very good. But while the present evidence is quite encouraging regarding venlafaxine's use for neuropathic pain, further research is needed. So encouraging, encouraging. And then the Cochrane review says, you know, let's cut to the bottom line here. No evidence to revise prescribing guidelines to promote the use of venlafaxine in neuropathic pain. The evidence is not very good when you compare other things. Compared to other things, venlafaxine is not so good. So I'm telling you that when you look at these guidelines which are done, the evidence is collected in some sort of objective manner. When it comes to actually writing the sentences that go around that data, there's a lot of opinion in there. So here's some neuropathic pain guidelines. The Neuropathic Pain Special Interest Group for the International Association of the Study of Pain has published guidelines two and a half times. The 2010 are kind of guidelines. Um, the European Society of Neurologic, uh, Federation of Neurologic Societies published guidelines in 2010. Canadian Pain Society published guidelines. British Pain Society published guidelines. South African Society published guidelines. And the uh, National Institute for Clinical Effectiveness in Britain published guidelines. There's a whole bunch of other guidelines too, but those are the ones that are the biggest ones. So there's a whole bunch of them, and they decide to approach this in different ways. Some of them lump everything together. Some of them look at specific disease states. Post-herpetic neuralgia and painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy are the most studied conditions, no matter how you look at it. And they had different criteria for how to go forward and look at things and what to include. And no one knows what to do about opioids. Because there's some evidence. There's some evidence for harm. There's some evidence for benefit. Where do you, how do you balance that harm versus the benefit? So there's definitely inconsistencies. But despite all these differences, there's really overall more similarities than differences in the guidelines. So this is a review of guidelines. How exciting is that, right? I only looked at guidelines and I reviewed them. So published in 2016, so just a year ago, looked at 16 guidelines. Um, the conclusion was 
that the way they went about doing it, not so great, but shockingly, there's a lot of consistency. Almost everybody included TCAs as a first-line treatment. All but one included gabapentin and pregabalin as first-line. All but two included topical lidocaine. And as you go down the list, it gets to be less agreements, like SNRIs, opioids, somewhere between second and fourth-line treatments, depending on the guideline. So this is my slide I usually show when I'm talking about neuropathic pain. This is my slide. This is not... And I use, look at the guidelines and reflect it. So the things with the best evidence, second line, and then others that occasionally might work. Antidepressants, which are specific antidepressants, tricyclic antidepressants, nortripline, azipramine, the SNRI, specifically deloxetine, less evidence for venlafaxine in a single study for does venlafaxine. Gabapentin, pregabalin, carbamazepine for trigeminal neuralgia. It's FDA approved for that condition specifically. Opioids and tramadol topical lidocaine patch, and then opioids and tramadol. You can put them wherever you want to, first line, second line, third line, fourth line. Other anti-epileptics, other antidepressants with much less evidence, capsaicin, and a bunch of others. So this is another review of guidelines listing things, and I do not expect you to be able to read this, but this summarizes the guidelines that have been published at this time, and there's a lot of commonalities across these. Again, TCAs are the most universally recommended medications. Um, gabapentin and pregabalin are there. Second line is where opioids typically appear, and it's also where SNRIs appear at times. So starting to be some consistency looking at this. So let's dive into detail with the most recent guideline and the, and the biggest, most ambitious guideline, which was published in 2015 uh, with Nana as the first author. This is the NOOPSIG-sponsored guideline. Large international group reviewed the literature, conducted a meta-analysis, looked at the quality of the evidence, they did all sorts of different analyses. And they calculated the numbers needed to treat. How many people do you need to treat someone to have a single patient with a meaningful response? And a meaningful response is defined as a 30% reduction in pain. And then they decided what is worth it in the numbers needed to treat for someone to say, yeah, I should maybe think about trying this. Any guess what, what number they put as the upper limit? You know, the numbers you need to treat of 100 mean you need to treat 100 people to get one person response. Clearly, that's not good enough. It's better than 100. It's 11. So their cutoff was 11. So if you had, if, if you had a 1 in 10 chance of getting a response, maybe we should consider that treatment as an option. Because if you're that one person, that's great. If you're the nine others, not so good. So they looked at the, they calculated the numbers needed to treat. And we're gonna talk about this a little bit in detail because it's interesting the way you look at this. SNRI is 6.4, pregabalin 7.7, gabapentin 7.2, 10.6 for high dose capsaicin, which is below the 11 threshold, <laughs> but not very much. Lower numbers for TCAs, tramadol, and opioids. First line, strong recommendation for tricyclic antidepressants, SNRIs, pregabalin, and gabapentin. This is across neuropathic pain conditions. Second line, weak recommendation for lidocaine patch, high-dose capsaicin, tramadol. Third line, weak recommendation for strong opioids, botulinum toxin A. And um, the topicals in the botulinum toxin A were only for peripheral neuropathic pain. Everything else was for every type of neuropathic pain. So this slide, bear spending some time on. If you want to get these guidelines and take a look and, and read this in detail and the little subtext that goes with this, it's quite interesting. 
So tricyclic antidepressants. So first, 15 studies, 948 participants. Notice there's a little cross next to the participants. Some of these studies were crossover design trials. So you get, you get a treatment, you wash out, and you get a different treatment. You get assigned differently. Those patients were counted twice. They participated twice in a clinical trial for the drug. So Mitchell Max's big landmark paper in New England Journal of Medicine with amitriptyline, dizipramine, and fluoxetine in a placebo was those participants were all counted twice looking at this. So it's 15 comparisons, 948 participants. Um, the numbers needed to treat the calculate 3.6. Susceptibility to bias. What that means is how many subjects would have to be enrolled in negative trials for us to now change our mind and decide the NNT is greater than 11? So it's a bigger, num bigger number is better than a smaller number. So it's a pretty big number. But if you look at if you looked at the publication dates for these and the size of these studies, these are smaller studies that are older. So there's other plots where they look at you know, the size of the dot is the no number of participants. These are small dot studies. SNRIs, 10 studies, so fewer studies, but almost three times as many participants, uh, resulting in uh, uh, numbers needed to treat of 6.4 and another pretty large susceptibility bias number. Pregabalin, 25 studies, huge number, the most studied drug in the world of neuropathic pain. Um, numbers needed to treat of 7.7 and a huge susceptibility bias number. Gabapentin, 14 studies, the second largest number of, of participants in those studies, um, another big number. Tramadol, fewer studies, fewer participants, reasonably big susceptibility bias thing. Strong opioids, smaller, even not very many studies at all, few participants. NNT of 4.3. Capsaicin, only if a single trial with 70 participants that was negative would be enough to kick capsaicin off the list. So it wouldn't take much for capsaicin to be no longer recommended. Botulinum toxin A, very small number of studies so far, as of 2015. So what do they actually suggest? They, they go on and give you like the doses. So gabapentin, 1,200 to 3,600 milligrams a day in divided doses, three divided doses, which is consistent with the label. You know what the average prescribed dose of gabapentin is in the United States? 900 milligrams a day. How many placebo-controlled randomized trials with a dose of 900 milligrams a day show benefit in neuropathic pain? As far as I can tell, zero. So this drug is commonly used commonly used for conditions that aren't neuropathic pain and commonly underdosed. And it talks about the extended release formulations and the, pre, the prodrug, pregabalin, goes through, goes through good detail. So if you want something to look at, this is heavy reading. This is a good, good, good uh, guideline to look at. So if you look at that list, I'm guessing most of you aren't really surprised, right? You're, for some reason, out of all the choices, you've chosen to be here. Thank you, right? So you're attending a pain meeting and you've come to this session. And you may not represent the community standard for understanding about neuropathic pain, because you're kind of a step ahead, because you're here being educated about it. An example, Bob Dworkin looked at post-epic neuralgia treatment in the community. Only 25% of the patients were started on a first-line drug. Equally likely to start with a third-line or non-recommended drug as a first-line drug. 
anti-inflammatory drugs are not present in any guideline. There's no literature to support using anti-inflammatory drugs, yet they are commonly prescribed in neuropathic pain conditions. Of a manuscript I was on a conference call this morning about in which we showed that yet again, the anti-inflammatory drugs commonly prescribed for neuropathic pain conditions. Um, and when you give people a scenario, they often will pick anti-inflammatory drugs. So a couple things, we're, we're really not there yet. Okay, the French do it better. <clears throat> and you think about French all kinds of different ways, right? They have better cheese. They have a better work week. <laughs> Other things may not be better. Their bread's probably better too. But they do better with this. So this is a survey of GPs after French Pain Society neuropathic pain guidelines were published. It's a smaller community. Those guidelines are very well distributed and pushed all over the place. So they presented a case vignette and said, hey, what do you think is going on with the patient? They were really good at making the diagnosis of neuropathic pain almost 90% of the time. And then when they made the diagnosis of neuropathic pain, they picked first-line medications 90% of the time. Um, but they still use things that they wouldn't suggest every now and then. And they, did, they deemed this to be satisfactory. I would deem this to be fantastic. So we should try to emulate the French a little bit. I think this would be a good step forward. So in your practice, in reality, how to use these things. First, start with the patient. Evaluate the patient. What's going on? What are the components of their pain? What's going on with them psychosocially? What's their physical function? What's their mental health like? What's their sleep like? You know, on and on and on. All those kind of things that we, hopefully you're spending this meeting learning how to do, or, or refreshing yourself how to do that. It makes sense to pick a first-line medication first. If they have primarily neuropathic pain, I can't think of a reason not to start with a first-line medication. Which one? That's the art. We'll talk about that in a minute. If there's an adequate response, add another first-line treatment with a different mechanism of action, preferably. Stop the first one if there's no response or intolerable side effects. If there's a partial response, probably continue it while you start the second one. After these first three steps, a little bit less clear out there in the wilderness. Let's go back and think about some of those medications just for a second. Are any of you pharmacists in the, in the audience? Okay. How many, lists of, how many things do you think of as contraindications to tricyclic antidepressants? Probably several, right? Um, including, like, if you're over 65, not necessarily suggested. How many contraindications to gabapentin can you think of? Not very many. Those, aren't, those kind of factors aren't in there. The, like, the ability to, for someone to tolerate it. If you look back into some of the details of, of the guidelines that were published in 2015, they talk about the side effects of tricyclic antidepressants are higher than with other things. So there's a lot of work to be done in thinking about which drug to go with what. And how do you, so how do you go about actually implementing these? Because there's so much detail missing. They don't talk about comorbidities. They don't talk about combination therapy. They don't talk about dose variability. Like there's a patient that says, I took 100 milligrams of gabapentin. I couldn't wake up the next day. The person says, well, I took all my 3,600 milligrams at night last night and felt nothing, right? There's really variability in these things. Um, they don't talk about drug interactions. They don't talk about other types of pain conditions, mental health. A whole bunch of things are missing. And concomitant musculoskeletal pain. Some of these drugs have zero effectiveness on primary musculoskeletal pain. So if the musculoskeletal pain is a big component of what they have going on, the patients may not perceive any benefit. 
I think I'm going to skip past that. So another important thing, which Charles kind of touched on a little bit, is who's in the clinical trial? So the clinical trials are typically classified by disease. So it's diet, painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. It's post-traumatic neuralgia. It's post-traumatic neuropathy. They're age-restricted. They can't be too old or too young. The comorbidities are restricted. They can't have poorly controlled diabetes. They can't have other painful conditions. They can't have poorly controlled anxiety or depression. Um, they can't have cardiac disease or hepatic disease or renal disease. Um, the other treatments are quite limited, often monotherapy or none. Um, and if they have other pain conditions, they're thrown out. They may exclude those with really severe pain or relatively mild pain. So what they want, what we want in clinical trials are subjects, not patients. I don't enroll from my clinic. I don't want my patient as a subject, research subject. I like to enroll from the community. And I tell people, I'm a doctor, you're a patient. I'm not your doctor, you're not my patient. You're in, we're in a clinical trial here. You're, you're a subject. We're, we're doing a study. And I, it's not quite this, I'm trying to do my, everything I can to make you feel better and function better and be satisfied with your treatment. I'm conducting the study, and you're agreeing to be part of it. So you want compliant subjects who will answer questions and wear devices on themselves and agree to having their blood drawn a bunch of times. These are not our patients because subjects aren't patients. Clinical trials aren't clinical practice. So who's the ideal candidate for a clinical trial? This guy, right? He has no freedom to escape. He's going to do what you tell him to do, or she. And usually it's going to be only he or only she. And they're all going to look very much the same, no variation. The other thing is that in the guidelines, other treatments which we know can be helpful for people's well-being are not represented. Because guess what? Most of those drug studies are funded by whom? The people who make them. They have an interest in having successful trials. They, want to, they are promoting their business by promoting these medications. We understand this as part of the deal, right? That's how our world works. No one is manufacturing CBT and has it you know, trademarked or mindfulness or something else. So these conditions are, don't have the big financial support to be studied as well. A lot of things we know are helpful for our patients are not anywhere in those guidelines. And then there are specific diseases that really aren't studied at all, and there's no guideline whatsoever for. I commonly fight with insurance companies about painful small fiber peripheral neuropathy. When they tell me what I need to use for that condition, I said, well, show me the clinical trials for that drug you're suggesting I use for this condition. Because there aren't very many, or close to zero, and there's certainly no guidelines that tell us what to do. There's a bunch of them, which we see in practice, which are not very well studied. So you're on your own. The guidelines are going to generally tell you it's neuropathic pain, it's peripheral, it's central, so here's what I'm going to do. But a lot of things aren't very clear. And then newer medications and new, new, new ideas and concepts are less well thought about. So low-dose naltrexone is a big hot thing now in a lot of places. Not in these guidelines, not really looked at. Has some placebo-controlled randomized trials in a variety of conditions. Ketamine, IV lidocaine, there's a bunch of other things that aren't really in there. Um, Tepenadol has ER, has FDA, is FDA labeled specifically for painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy, though it's not called out separately. Um, so there's a lot of things that really aren't there. So how do I put it all together? The good things, a group of people who are really smart got together and looked at the literature. These treatments have the best evidence, and they're more likely to work than other things. 
and if you're using the things on the list first, that's a good place to start. Older guidelines are older literature, older stuff. Our patients are individuals. Comorbidities and a whole bunch of other things are not taken into account. There can be multiple pain types in a patient in front of you. And there's a lot of things that determine what people, what you give the patient, including patient preferences, your practice pattern, insurance barriers, a whole bunch of other things that factor into this. So my conclusions are the guidelines can be helpful. They're information, they're guideposts. But remember, our patients come first. You have to make the guidelines fit the patient, not the other way around, and use your judgment. And there's newer treatments that are coming, and they will not appear first in a the guideline. They'll, they'll appear other ways. So false NSAIDs are not there. False, there are some individual things, but there's some commonalities with the different treatments because the peripheral neuropathy, neuropathic pain is treated differently than others, and, and that absolutely the guidelines do not account for comorbid conditions. So thank you for your attention. We'll take questions at the end. Okay, I'm going to uh, shift to interventional pain treatment guidelines. I'm an anesthesiologist. Um, it's on. It's on. You hear me? So, um, so I'm an anesthesiologist. Um, I do interventional therapies, but that's not all I do. I, I, I probably spend 50 percent of my time doing interventional therapies ranging from injections to implantable devices, but the other half of my time is in the clinic doing medical management uh, uh, evaluation. Um, these are my disclosures. I am uh, a consultant for a couple of companies that do implantable devices, Boston Scientific and Jazz Pharmaceutical. Um, and the learning, learning objectives, I'm going to go over a little bit of the epidemiology of invasive therapies to treat pain, discuss clinical guidelines and the pros and cons of the clinical guidelines, discuss the challenges we face with applying these clinical guidelines to interventional therapies, and then look at the difference between applying guidelines to efficacy versus safety, uh, because it's very different. <clears throat> so the, there is a... a, a one, Interventional therapies <clears throat> for pain treatment have become under scrutiny over the years. And the reason for this is there has been a huge increase in the use of spine injections from 2000 to 2008, 107% increase in spine injections, 186% um, increase in procedures. And now epidural steroid injections account for most of these. Uh, and they are probably the single most scrutinized uh, a, a treatment uh, for, for chronic back pain. The, however, the rates of growth have been the highest with sacroiliac joint injections and facet injections, and there seems to be geographical variances in rates that can't explain the differences in these in health status. Uh, they, now, the top 10% of the injectors account for 36% of all of the total procedures, so there seems to be a certain group that is really doing a, a lot of injections. <clears throat> And now those are probably the ones that are only doing injections, and they don't really do see the patients in the clinic. <clears throat> now the annual number of spine procedures from 2000 to 2011, 228% increase, um, with an 11.4 annual increase. So this has been a huge increase over the years. Um, <clears throat> pain management accounts for most of the interventional therapies to treat pain, followed by, then there's uh, other physicians, um, and, and then surgery and radiology do a smidgen. Now there are, 
major challenges in applying high levels of evidence to surgically and minimally invasive procedures. First of all, there's ethical limitations and difficulties in blinding. How are you going to recruit subjects to have a device implanted or a needle inserted into their spine or their disc, but you're going to tell them it may be sham. We're not going to do anything. Um, control groups are very hard to, uh, to design. Placebo use and exposing them to the risk of the procedure, but saying <clears throat> they're not going to get any benefit. And then there's this cost prohibition because if we do a placebo-controlled or sham-controlled interventional therapy, we are on the hook for the entire cost of that procedure, uh, including the active, active uh, group. So this is very, it's very cost prohibitive. And there are not many funding agencies you can go to to fund these, 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 these uh, trials. So what it ends up being is limited to the industry who does most of the trials of implantable devices. But we don't have any industry that's interested in doing epidural steroid injections. What do they, what do they gain from it? Um, and if, defining successful outcomes is, is very, very easy. And then, the, of course, the ability to recruit subjects. It's very difficult to recruit subjects into these trials. So if you look at the, the Institute of Medicine, the definition of clinical guidelines, in 1990, they defined it as a systematically developed statements to assist practitioners and patient decisions about appropriate health care for specific cl clinical circumstances. And then it slightly changed in 2011 where they said, statements that include recommendations intended to optimize patient care that are informed by systematic reviews of evidence and assessment of benefit and harms of alternative care options. So they expanded this to include harms. And then the 2011 Institute of Medicine report on clinical guidelines, they said they acknowledge that for many clinical domains, high quality evidence is lacking or even non-existent. And that really applies to interventional therapies. Despite such constraints, guideline developers should still be able to produce trustworthy clinical guidelines. So if you look at clinical practice guidelines, there are pros and cons. And the pros are that it's scientific tool for quality improvement. I think we all agree with that. It reduces ineffective and increases effective treatment. I think that is somewhat controversial. It feeds off of evidence-based medicine. It's a tool for tracking outcomes. Because if we, get, if we could get everybody to follow the clinical treatment guidelines, and then all that went into a database, we could actually look at that to see if, we, if it's working. But that doesn't exist. Reduces, reduces cost if they're conservative, uh, and reduces inequity and variability, and we think it may improve safety. And I'm going to go over some of that with how the, for, with interventional treatment guidelines, it probably, that's where it's the most effective in reducing, in improving safety. The con are that it fosters stagnation, denial of care. These, um, even those practice guidelines are not standard of care. Insurance industries, especially with the workman's comp, they will latch on to them. And I'll, an example is the uh, ACOM guidelines in California. That, those are guidelines that came out or recently they were on the table for proposing that workman's comp will no longer approve spinal cord stimulation or intrathecal drug therapy. That's off their list. And the people who developed these guidelines, not one of them was a pain management specialist on, those, on, the, on, the, on the panel. It, it, um, it's cookbook medicine. 
we know all of our patients are, 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 are different. It de-skills practitioners and make them turn them into cooks rather than really, really listening and looking at the patient. It increases cost if it's overzealous. It ignores clinical judgment and it's created by a small group of interested parties. So this brings me to, you know, what is evidence-based medicine? And evidence-based medicine is the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about care of individual patients. And this is in contrast to comparative effectiveness, which is the generation and synthesis of evidence that compares the benefits and harms of alternative methods to prevent, diagnose, and treat. So I think that interventional therapies are probably less open to evidence-based, because we just don't have a lot of evidence, and they're probably more open to comparative uh, therapies. And then there's this issue of efficacy versus effectiveness, and they're not necessarily the same. Whereas efficacy is based through, determined through double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials in specific, well-defined populations, effectiveness is really how it works in the real world. And we see therapies that we show are efficacious in well-designed clinical trials, but we use them clinically and we find out, wow, they're not so good. And there's also some therapies that have not been proven to be efficacious. An example is epidural steroid injections. I don't think there's a lot of studies that have really shown that, yes, are they truly efficacious in double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled? But they're widely used in our clinical practice and our clinical experience and say, hey, these patients are getting better and they're, they're efficacious, or they're effective. Now, definitions of successful outcome varies with procedure. And, and this will depend on the invasiveness and the riskiness of the procedure. So in general, interventions with higher risk and cost are going to require longer follow-ups. So epidural steroid injections, three months are, you, are, are the, 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 the outcome measure. Whereas radiofrequency lesioning, it's going to be six months. It's going to be longer. And then you go into spinal cord stimulation and intrathecal therapy. It's going to be 12 months to two years. And then spine surgeries, it's going to be two years. So again, the more invasive, more costly, we've got to do longer follow-ups. Now, this is, I always like to, to bring this up as an example of, um, of bodies that are reviewing the literature and come up with conclusions. And this was published in 2007. And I think, Charles, you were a part of this, this group, where they did a, a very good analysis of epidural steroid injections and looked at the literature. And I thought it was very well done. And they came out with a conclusion that evidence supports pain relief of up to three months. But they could not recommend routine use because of lack of evidence. But I look at that three months and I say, why not? Because three months of relief is very clinically useful. I can keep doing the injection every three months for the rest of their life if I have to. Now, we don't usually, that's not usually required. I would say less than 1% of my patient population gets an epidural steroid injection every three months for years and years and years. Most of them, we give it to them and then we're buying them time to see if they're going to go through other therapies and heal. But so, yeah, yeah it, it depends on how you're defining outcome is very, very important. Now, there are many reasons people fail invasive treatments. There are patient-related factors, the psychological disease burden. Are they on opioids? Because if they're on a lot of opioids, they're less likely to, to respond to interventional therapies. There's work-related factors, degree of pathology. And then there's a diagnosis. Are we sticking the needle in the right place? Are we delivering the therapeutics in the right place? 
um, technical failure. And then there's these factors result in high selection bias in invasive therapy trials that result in study courts that don't really represent real world. And then we start using them clinically, and we don't, they just don't apply. Um, <clears throat> now, also, you have to look at your expert panel. And I, coming back to the, the California ACOM guidelines, and they did not have one pain specialist on those guidelines, got a treatment guidelines. They, you got to have somebody that knows the, the therapy to provide input. Um, so, qualities of a good expert panel, access to available evidence, understands the clinical problem. Pain is very complicated. They have to understand not only the physical, but the psychological and the social aspects of the patients we're dealing with. Have clinical experience with the intervention, understand the methods used to make a reasonable judgment, and have no conflict of interest. Um, now, this is one of the issues that came out with the ACOM guidelines. They say, well, they don't, the, the pain specialist being on the uh, uh, panel have a conflict of interest because they want to do the procedures for the money. Um, I don't believe that. I think that, that they, they, there are very good pain management specialists that can, could give some good, good, good feedback. Now, interventional treatment guidelines serve two purposes. Uh, apply evidence-based medicine to improve patient selection and outcome, but they also apply clinical practices for techniques to improve outcome and safety. And this is, this is the thought process that I go through. And, and this is something that I teach my fellows because I tell my fellows, as you go through your, 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 your career, you're going to be faced with a lot of new therapies, and especially on the interventional side. And how are you going to decide if you're going to use that therapy, whether it's an, an invasive therapy or a medication or anything? So the first thing I ask them is so you need to look at efficacy. And efficacy, are there multi-center, double-blinded, randomized, controlled trials? Probably not. Well then, what's the clinical experience? Is it, is it widely used? If there's no very minimal efficacy, then I ask them about safety, because if there are safety issues in the absence of efficacy, it stops right there. I'm not going to use it. However, if there's minimal safety, it's good tolerability, then how easy is it to use the therapy? And then what are the costs? So these are the priorities that I have them go through. Types of invasive therapy trials, well, there's randomized placebo-controlled trials. And candidates for this are going to be pharmaceutical injections. You can do placebo-controlled trials with epidural steroid injection. Hard to enroll, but you can do them. You can do them with intrathecal therapies. We've done them. We've done um, in saline infusions into the intrathecal space and compare it to actives. Now, high-frequency spinal cord stimulation is something that is, 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 is sub-thresholds. The patients don't feel it. So that's a therapy that you actually could randomize sham versus active. Um, randomized sham controlled, radiofrequency ablation therapies, intradiscal therapies, then you have ra randomized active control, which are the injections, intrathecal therapies, spinal cord stimulation. Now, spinal cord stimulation, paresthesia-based, you feel it. You can't blind that. They know they're getting the stimulation or they don't know it. And then there's comparative effectiveness, which you can do it with all of the therapies. Then these are some of the evidence. So if you look at epidural steroid injections, for lumbar, cervical, thoracic. For radicular pain, evidence is good. However, if you go beyond that, axial pain, stenosis, post lamy it goes to fair to limited. It's not that, that strong. And then for cervical radicular pain, it comes out to be good. But beyond that, fair to, to poor. 
And then facet pain, uh, although the, 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 the numbers have been, done, been small and the, the trials have been small, but anyway, high temperature radiofrequency lesioning has shown to be good. And they actually studies that have done blinded sham controlled trials, which is amazing. They could actually get patients to agree to that. But they, ca they concluded in the lumbar region it was good, cervical region fair, but it's limited in the thoracic. And then pulsed radiofrequency lesioning is when you're not really lesioning it, but you're stimulating the nerves for a short period, and it's limited for that. Facet blocks for lumbar pain, fair to good. Um, fair limited for intraarticular injections for all the others. And then you look at all of the interventional treatment guidelines, and they're, but they're scarce. Um, Spinal injections, the uh, American Society of Interventional Pain Practitioners have them, the American Society of Anesthesia, ASRA, North American Spine Society all have guidelines. They're pretty consistent as, as far as um, uh, between them. Uh, and then you have the neuropathic pain. You have spinal cord stimulation guidelines that pain medicine came out in 2007. And then the intrathecal drug delivery, uh, we are on our fourth uh, consensus guidelines. Um, and then some are embedded in global treatment guidelines, and this is the ACOM guidelines in the, in the, in the California workman's compensation system. And then applying guidelines to interventional therapies are challenging. Uh, spinal injections performed by a wide range of specialists with a wide range of expertise. And then you have spinal cord stimulation and intrathecal therapies, which is easier to apply since practiced among smaller groups of, of, of physicians. Um, and then it's less effective, however, remember, as a single therapeutic modality, and this is something that's forgotten in that it's just one treatment of a multimodal model in managing chronic pain. And then do they improve outcome? Well, it depends on the setting they are used in. Is it single modality or is it more of an integrated, multimodal, interdisciplinary practice or is it among the workman's compensation system? Now, the workman's compensation system. I'm in the this, an example I'll give you is I was on the um, uh, I was uh, I'm on the uh, the, uh, the associate editor of the Clinical Journal of Pain, and I received an article that was comparing spinal cord stimulation, physical therapy, and medical management in the workman's compensation system in the state of Washington, and what they concluded is that spinal cord stimulation doesn't work, and that that the patients don't get better. And I looked at that and I said, wow, should I send this out for review or should I just re reject it? Because I know, know that that's in the workman's compensation system. And, and, and I knew if we publish that, the insurance companies are going to apply it to everybody. So I decided to go ahead and send it out to, to some pretty respected reviewers. And I got their reviews back. And they said, listen, this is a problem. You have the choice of either publishing it with an editorial over the limitations or just rejecting it. So I ended up rejecting it. And then three months later, it ended up in pain, which is a very reputable journal. But it was with a very seething editorial saying that this should not be applied to the general population. The workman's compensation system is different. Right after that was published in pain, the state of Washington announced they weren't going to approve um, spinal cord stimulation anymore. So that's an example of how they use them. Um, now, do they improve safety? So this is a, when I was a, in getting into pain medicine in the late 90s, I started noticing, getting, receiving reviews for pretty catastrophic outcomes 
from cervical transforaminal epidural steroid injections. And then I started seeing one after another, and one of the common links I saw in it with every one of them was with methylprednisolone. And so I said, boy, something is wrong here. And they were, these were patients that were getting cerebellar basilar infarcts, uh, brainstem infarcts, deaths. Uh, and so we did a survey of the American Pain Society asking physicians if you do these injections, yes, and if so, can you give us some information? Have you had any adverse outcomes? And we got 286 returned, 61 response detailing 78 serious neurological events, 13 cerebellar basal infarcts, 11 spinal cord infarcts, 12 deaths, and every one of them were with methylprednisolone. So we thought, okay, something's going on here. And this was back in, this was published in 2007, but this had been going on since late 90s. So um, we did a rat study, and we took these rats and, and injected the carotid artery with different preparations. Depamedrol, Sawyermedrol, Depam, and then they all died immediately. However, when we, and, and Sawyermedrol is non-particulate. Sawyermedrol is a soluble uh, uh, methylprednisolone. However, when we, when we uh, injected dexamethasone, they were fine. They walked around, and, uh, and then we took the Depamedrol and spun it down and got rid of all the particles, injected it, they had died. So it's almost like you're burning the, melting the blood-brain barrier and it's just blowing right into the brain. So this got on the, the uh, radar of the FDA. And the FDA, they have this safe, safe use initiative. And the safe use initiative is collaboration between the FDA and the healthcare providers to reduce preventable harm from medications. So a working group was convened, which I was a part of, and due to the increasing reports of neurological events from cervical transforaminal epidural steroid injections, and it was based on the work we did. And so when we, in the middle of our consensus work group, all of a sudden the FDA puts out this uh, post on 4-23-14, that epidural corticosteroid injections, drug safety communication, risk of rare but serious neurological events. However, they failed to point out that they were referring to the transforaminal injections of particulate steroid. And everybody was saying, oh my gosh, epidural steroid injections are causing harm in there. And this is not the interlaminar. This is the transforaminal. So what we end up doing is we, we, we um, um, ended up publishing the guidelines, which were published in, in, in anesthesiology. And we were focusing on the risk of transforaminal particulate steroids. So in summary, interventional pain management guidelines, they may focus too much on the evidence, ignores clinical experience and judgment, and they need to better define success for specific interventions, which are going to vary. They need to factor in the use of interventional treatments in an integrated, interdisciplinary, multimodal care model, and it's difficult to determine the effect on outcome. Um, however, it's probably more effective in improving safety. And this is uh, probably the need for more guidelines on safe use practices when we're doing uh, uh, these interventional therapies. So thank you, and I'm going to turn it back over to, to Charles. So we're here. We go. Uh, we're going to. I am going to go through very quickly um, some ideas. Um, just food for thought. This is more, we're just going to go through these slides very quickly, um, and then 
add that to the robustness of our question and answer session. So we've gone through three topics, migraine, neuropathic pain, interventional pain management. Last question to consider before, you know, to, to talk about are, are, are the CDC chronic opioid guideline or is the CDC chronic opioid guideline improving patient outcomes? And I think that's a provocative question because I think it's too soon to know. But at the very least, um, these were uh, guide, this was a guideline that was published in two um, as a joint effort between the American Pain Society and the American Academy of Pain Medicine. Um, it, it's interesting um, because um, Dr. Chow was uh, involved in this guideline as well as a CDC guideline, and um, one of our colleagues, um, Dr. Dan Carr, um, has re recently published an article saying how is it that essentially the same evidence that was used in creating a guideline in 2009, which actually supported the use of chronic opioid therapy for chronic pain, is being used to suggest otherwise in 2016. But separate issue. Um, the ASA, the American Pain Society and American Academy of Pain Medicine guideline in 2009 addressed all these issues here on the slide. Um, essentially many of the same features that were expressed in the CDC guideline. Um, the CDC guideline that was published in 2016 in multiple sources um, looks at determining when to initiate or continue opioids for chronic pain outside of end-of-life care. So these were developed specifically for non-cancer-related pain primary care providers. Uh, included among the guideline principles were the selection of opioid therapy, non-pharmacologic therapy, non-opioid pharmacologic therapy, establishment of treatment goals, discussion of risks and benefits of therapy with patients, opioid selection, dose, duration, selection of extended release and long-acting opiates, dosing consideration, the duration of treatment for acute chronic opioid therapy, and consideration for follow-up and discontinuation of opioids, addressing and, and treating risk, the risk and addressing harms of opioid use, evaluating risk factors for opioid-related harms and integration into the pain management plan, review of prescription drug monitoring programs, use of urine drug screening, which the guideline recommends at least annually, uh, but there are no further guidelines about how often otherwise, uh, considerations for concurrent use of opioid and benzodiazepines, and arranging for treatment of opioid use disorder. So um, I'm going to throw the question now. I will disclose, since you mentioned that um, um, I had been I'm part of the panel that um, uh, came to that terrible conclusion about epidural steroid injections. I was like the lone person, the lone pain specialist on the panel. Um, I, will, I think it's important to know that you actually reviewed this, part of the reviewers, you, you actually one of the authors of the CDC guideline um, uh, for, opioid, for chronic opioid therapy. So with that background, just really brief background, um, I'd like to, to um, stop <laughs> and field any questions that you might have. With respect to the last session, section, um, it is too soon to know in a formal way, unless you're aware of uh, recent data that has been published, whether or not what impact the CDC guideline is made, being made on quality of care, uh, not necessarily opioid prescribing up or down, but if, it's, if that guideline has helped improve pain treatment outcomes for people. Um, so yeah. I'll ask you so, that first. So, so far, the, 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 
what they've seen is, of course, a reduction in opioid prescribing, but an increase in opioid, probably a, an increase in heroin deaths. So we're starting to see a shift to heroin. Uh, but quality of care, I don't know. There's no, there's no uh, evidence around that. Okay, so um, we all welcome your questions. What questions might you have about anything we've talked about today? Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. I, 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 those are not what guidelines are intended for. And, and guidelines, it, it takes the practice of medicine out of our hands. Right. And it, take, it, it, it gets in the middle of the physician-patient relationship. And, and I, I'm, I'm, every day I'm fighting insurance companies um, uh, because they say it's not in the guideline. Right. And, uh, and that's not what they're intended for. We're going to have to try to, try to uh, educate the bottom line is, is I think that they, um, are, are they, they use it to cut costs, too. I, I, when, when I'm, when my frustration is the way that they selectively use the guidelines, right? So um, tricyclic antidepressants, I have a letter for a patient who is 75 years old with a heart block in which amitriptyline was specifically suggested for me to use for this patient. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's incredible. And so the, you know, the selective use of, of the guidelines are quite interesting, and the lack of paying attention to patient factors is, is impressive. And then, as you point out, um, we need to advocate on every level we can for comprehensive treatment because opioids do not make people's lives get better. They don't help them function more. There's no great evidence that that's the case in, in general. You know, they, they aren't the answer. And similarly, tricyclic antidepressants don't, gabapentin doesn't, pregabalin doesn't, duloxetine doesn't either. So it needs to be in the context of finding out a way of getting people to exercise with physical therapy and other things, of helping them cope with their ongoing pain and life circumstances. It's not just about the medication. And there are different pockets and different places in the country where that's done better than others and where there's broader coverage and there's incredibly varied insurance. And you know now that if you're a practicing clinician, if you don't know your patient's insurance status and you make a suggestion, you may be suggesting something that they'll never get. Um, and so it only leads to frustration. <laughs> so it, it's gotten a lot more complicated. Can I ask you a question? So it struck me as, um, well, can you comment upon the fact that, um, you know, f for those 
the, the, the analysis known as numbers needed to treat um, suggests that the, the, the lower the number, the more likely it is to get a meaningful response, which is often defined as 50% pain relief. Um, and, and yet the European, the most recent um, international association, you know, the NUPSIG guidelines, uh, suggested treatments that, you, as you said, um, may have a 1 in 10, 1 in 7 likelihood. How do we rationally address the fact that opioid therapy, which is no, no, none of these treatments are panaceas, but we're recommending, that group recommended treatments that are much less likely to achieve a 50% pain response, such as tramadol, gabapentin, uh, capsaicin, and others, actually all, um, in, in ahead of opioid therapy, which is next to tricyclics, the most likely to achieve meaningful pain relief. Yeah, a little bit. So there's also numbers needed to harm, which are not addressed, and there's right. numbers needed right. for, to die, right? NND, how many need to die? So I challenge someone right now to do a quick PubMed search and find the Siegel agent gabapentin overdose death. There's like one or two reported, and they're not clear. That's out of hundreds of millions of people given gabapentin. It's pretty easy to find the opioid overdose death. You know, there's, they're happening every hour in our country. And so that's a pretty bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Also, unlike other drugs, if you, the, um, there's emerging good evidence. If you look at people with chronic pain given opioids and look at them six months later, they're more likely to have depression than those with similar levels of pain that weren't given opioids. New onset depression is an emerging adverse effect with opioid therapy. Other drugs don't seem to show that as much. So that the harms have to be balanced there. It's not just NNT. And as, the, as Mark presented with the evolving definition of, of the use of guidelines, in, first it was just effectiveness, and they said, well, wait, effectiveness in, in the capacity for badness. I personally, for instance, thinking about Mark's guidelines, don't do cervical transraminal injections of any kind just because the, the risk is too great, the anatomy is too variable, and if it's, a, if it's once in my practice that I make someone a quadriplegic or die or have a brainstem stroke, I would feel horrible. So I'm not going to do it, even if it would be potentially more effective for certain mm-hmm. patients. Mm-hmm. So we have to balance those things. And you have to, uh, also with this, this transferaminal, I actually reviewed a case with this dexamethasone, transferaminal injection stroke, and that was a, a uh, of vertebral artery thrombosis. So yes, the risks are there. Also, with, with opioid use and interventional therapies, um, if I tell the patients that are on an opioid that uh, the purpose of this interventional therapy is to either reduce your opioid or take you off, and why should I do a bunch of interventional therapies and they're still taking a boatload of um, opioids? For those patients that I'm considering for implantable devices, for spinal cord stimulation or intrathecal therapy, one of the requisite prerequisites is they have to go off of their opioid before I will do the trial. And I do this because I've been doing this for 20-plus years, and I would go around the country and talk to interventional guys. And I would say, how many of you take your patients off of opioids uh, before you put your implantable device in, and no hands would go up. And I'd say, how many of you get your patients off the opioids after you put your implantable device up in, and no hands would go up? And I'd say, something's wrong. I mean, we're putting this expensive device in there, and you're still keeping them on all the opioids? Now, the reason they won't take them off is it's very labor-intensive to get somebody off of an opioid. 
And so what I do is I say, I'm not going to do the device until you're off your opioid. And so I put them on a slow wean. And then those that go off do a lot better. That tells me they're motivated. They want to get off of them, they, and, then, and then they do a lot better. So you are an author of the consensus intrathecal guideline panel, right? Uh, and it's in its, what, third or fourth inter iteration. Um, is that statement recommended? Yes, we, do, we address that, we, we address that in, in our most recent, and that was the first one of four right. that we did address it, and we put a section in there on that considerations of opioid taper um, <clears throat> um, either prior or during the trial. I, I was really trying to push them to be more aggressive and then I, I just was outnumbered, and they said, "Oh well, no, no, you can, you don't have to have to do it uh, before." But I just feel that it's a good test for the patient because what will happen is if you put a patient on a taper, about 10% of them will completely spin out of control, and either they leave your practice or they're just a mess. And those prob you're probably dealing with another problem there, and you probably need to get them into some help. Uh, but then it's about 80% of them that do go off. They, they, they're, they're struggling, they're hanging in there, they're, but it's a slow taper. There's about 10% of them that I get them off their opioids and they say, wow, I feel better. I don't need the device. Um, so it's a good test to, to, to put your patients through. Other questions or comments? Yes, sir. So I was at the keynote yesterday, and I heard the discussion about this, uh, for sure. But I had some strong disagreements with what was said, which is I'm not necessarily talking about single-agent single opioid overdose death. And the truth is that that 16,000 number means a factor in, right? And often this starts with oxycodone. And I gave the example that a, a patient told me about their child who died, right? Oxycodone at a party, started using opioids, Prescription opioids that were obtained from different sources, from family members, from from, from cam cabinets, then then started using alcohol, then started using heroin, and then on the day that she killed herself, had oxycodone, alcohol, and heroin in her blood and lead in her brain. And so, not specifically an opioid overdose death, but 
these are complex drugs, and there's a subset of patients that respond to them differently. Some of us were exposed to an opioid, and it's an adverse experience. Some of us, it's a neutral experience. Some of us, it's a very different experience. And that's a complex genetic, a whole bunch of other factors go into that. Um, so that these have different risks that, that other drugs don't have. Doesn't mean we should not use them. Doesn't use, mean that I don't prescribe opioids, I don't use opioids in my practice. It just means that, they're, that they have risks associated with them. I'd encourage, I don't know if anybody's read the book Dreamland. I think it's a really, I'd encourage you to read it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it, it, it's I thought it was well done. It was by a journalist that really goes through the history and the perfect storm that developed between undertreatment of pain and, and lack of treatments and uh, all of a sudden industry promoting the opioids to treat pain and the black tar heroin from Mexico, which shifted from China. I, it's a really interesting book, and I thought it was really, I'd encourage you all to read it. And also another book, good book, is American Pain. American pain on the uh, pill mill uh, uh, crisis we had. Dr. Batconia. But, so we were on the, so there's a, I think it's called something different when I was on it, but um, um, there's a committee called the Quality Standards Subcommittee. I think it changed its name. And I, I think I, I was on it a couple of years before you were. Um, when I got on the committee, um, all that was being done um, was to review literature. Um, there is a methodology published on the AAN website. Anyone here could re review the method, the, the handbook on how, it's, how literature is rated and how decisions about levels of evidence are assigned and how recommendations are made. It's very transparent. But uh, um, uh, we had to argue, and I was pretty vo vocal about this, making a clinical context session. Um, and in fact, they, the AAN switched to that only after we did a joint guideline with the European Federation of Neurological Scientists about trigeminal neuralgia. And I met um, with people in Europe several times, uh, with Gary Gronseth, who's a leader of this process. Um, and they refused to jointly publish something, Misha, unless we established a clinical context. Until that point, these guidelines were being produced by the AAN without any clinical context whatsoever. Um, and so if things have metamorphized and transitioned to even greater input now um, to provide context to the evidence, then that's a step in the right direction. But many of the guidelines that AAN has published, no matter how well-intentioned, hurt patients because they don't provide context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we should be optimistic, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Any other questions or comments? 
Well, thank you all for attending and enjoy the rest of the meeting.